said last week we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know what we're going to do this week? We're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's right. That's right. And then guess what we're going to do the next time you come? We're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ because that is why we are here. That is why we do what we do. And I want to encourage you, as a matter of fact, that every morning that you wake up to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ because it truly does change everything. And that's the series that we've started. We kicked it off with Easter, saying that Easter changes everything. And as we did that, we launched into this week for the next four weeks, talking about how the resurrection and Jesus changes our past, it changes our present, changes our future, and most certainly changes our eternity. And I'm excited about that. I'm excited to be able to talk to you about it. I'm excited to hear what God has to say about it. And as we look at those facts, what we're going to do today is something a little bit different. And uh, I actually laughed. I was talking to one of the ladies last night. She said, yeah, we invited some friends, and they came. And, and uh, she said, I had to explain the church to them. And she said, um, the way I explained it is, is every week is just a little bit different. And I said, I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I started off saying this is a little bit different today, so I guess it is. Um, we're going to read a bunch of Scripture. And the reason why we're going to read a bunch of Scripture right up front is because I want to show you as Jesus changes the past and Jesus works on the things that we've done, I want to show you an example from Scripture from a guy by the name of Paul. And now Paul is well known for writing most of the New Testament letters. And in the process of writing that, uh, we know a little bit about him. But I want you to hear, even from his own words, as he writes to, uh, to Timothy, in 1 Timothy, that's where we'll be at first. And then we're going to look at the book of Colossians as he writes that letter to the church of Colossae. As, as we look at those, I want you to see it unfold. I want you to see what they have in common. And that, that past that was to what God has made him into be. And as we look at that, I want you to see it. I want, to see your, want you to see yourself in it. As a matter of fact, what I even want to do is I want to pray about it before we get to it because I don't want these to be my words. I don't want it to be my inflection on the way that I read it, that it affects you in some way. I want God to speak to your heart today. So let's do that right now. Let's pray to him and ask for that. Father God, we are so grateful for who you are and what you do. And I am thankful for every person that you've brought here today, every person who needs to hear what you have to say in your word, every person that needs to hear what you have to say from the book of 1 Timothy, from the book of Colossians, God, and from your message. God, I pray you speak to us right where we are at. You, only you, can convey a message to each person to meet them where they're at and where they need to be at through you. God, I pray you do that this morning. We pray it all in your name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles with you, I would challenge you to open to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and then we're going to flip over to Colossians chapter 1 after that. But if you don't have your Bibles, it'll be up here on the screen. And uh, if you have a digital device, a phone or an iPad or something along those lines, you can go to the Version Bible app if you have that on your phone. Click on it on the, on the menu. It'll have events, and you can click on events, and it'll say this. This changes everything. You can go and you can follow along with the scriptures that we have. So as we look, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Verses 12 through 16. This is what I'd like to read to you. It says this. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly my past, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. I was completely against everything the church was. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And I just love this verse. It says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. 
And maybe you have a different translation that says, of whom I am the worst. Paul is laying it out to Timothy saying, listen, I was and I was the worst at what I was, but God came into my life and he changed me. And that's what verse 16 tells us. It says, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the worst, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Isn't that a powerful thing to read? Well, we see that layout in Paul's life. We see what he's trying to convey to Timothy in this letter. It's something I think he's trying to convey to us as well, that we once were and we now are. And it's all because of God and his mercy and his grace. Now, what I want you to see is what he's writing also to this book, uh, to the church at Colossians in the book of Colossians here. It says this in chapter one, starting in verse 11. It says, may you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. Now let me pause for just a second. Who qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints? Was it you and what you did and what you're trying to do and what you're striving to do? No, it's not. It's what God has done. And it says it right there, who has delivered us. He has qualified us to share. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, verse 13, and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Verse 21, I want you to see this in you who once were, which would be your past. You once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now, which would be your present, reconciled in his body of flesh by death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue, which would be your future in the faith, Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and which I, Paul, became a minister. Now we see him laying this out, and we see the same, same series of events taking place that he wrote in 1 Timothy to the book of Colossians. And that is what God has done. And what God is continuing to do. Let's read, because the book of Colossians was actually written as a letter. There were no chapters. There were no verses. So he was writing this a letter. And my challenge to you, if you have a chance to this week, read through this book this week. It's only four chapters long. Read through it this week and see what God is saying to you. Read it as if it was written as a letter to you. Because that's what he was doing to this church in Colossae. And this is what it says here next. Colossians chapter 2, skipping down just a few verses into verse 8. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh. Your old self is dead 
by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, which you were also raised with him through the faith and the power of the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses, that's your past, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that's your past. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How many of our trespasses were forgiven? All. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Same letter, few a few verses later, chapter 3, verse 1. In then you have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are of the earth. For you have died past, and your life is hidden with Christ, present and future, in God. When God, who is in your life, appears, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked, past. You were living in them, past. But now, present, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but all is in Christ, and Christ is in all. Those are powerful passages I just read. We could literally take months and break down the book of Colossians. We could take months and break down the book of 1 Timothy. But what I want to do today is just a little bit different. I want you to look at what we just read and see the common thread. To see the common theme. And that common theme and that common thread is this. Is that you once were, but God made you. Your past was, but this is your present. And when we really look at it, how does that happen? That common theme comes from a word that is very misunderstood, and that is grace. Today, we're going to talk about grace. See, grace is something I think is misunderstood because many people think it's just merely what you say before you eat a meal. It's time to say grace. Good God, let's eat. And here we go. And that's, that's, that's our mentality towards grace. We'll sing about it. We'll sing all different sorts of Christian songs. You can go into a hymnal and open it up, and lots of songs in that book will talk about grace. Probably the most famous one, the one that's actually considered the Christian anthem, is Amazing Grace. And I'm sure you might know those words. Uh, there's a pretty good chance that you've sang them before, whether you've been in church once or you've been in church a thousand times. That, that word grace, an amazing grace that we sing about, uh, tend to be words. I'm not sure. Uh, I like American Idol. We watch American Idol, and one of my favorite parts when it, the show first started was watching auditions, because people would, would do terrible and get made fun of, and that was kind of fun to watch. But uh, they'd also, for whatever reason, would always sing Amazing Grace. Like, that was the song that would make people want to uh, show off their voice, to, to perform. And sometimes we get into the performance mindset when we sing and we forget what the words actually mean. And I want to read to you today the words of Amazing Grace. Now, you probably know them, but, but listen to them as what it says. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that did what? 
saved a what? A wretch like me. And I think about that, and I think about this, the, the word grace, and I think about the word wretch. And when, when I think about the word wretch, one thing comes to mind. It's a cat hacking up a hairball. And I don't know why that is, but it's just that sound that you hear, and that's when you jump out of bed really fast because you know there's going to be a mess on the carpet. You're trying to find the cat. And, it's, and when you think about that sound, and you think about that's what I once was, it kind of puts a whole new spin on the word wretch, doesn't it? When you're like, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch, like me, you know? It, it, it changes everything in that perspective. And, and we look at it, and we hear it, and we, we know the words, and it says, I once was lost. But now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And the, and the next part says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour that I first believed." And we hear those words, and we think about it, and we can put ourselves in that, 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 that situation of being a wretch, and what we were, and what we are now, and our past was, but our present is currently. And we think, okay, yeah, I can get that. But I think if we even look at this song just a little bit closer, and why it was written and who it was written by, I think it'll open our eyes a little bit more to, to what it is. Because when you look at this, this song, the guy who wrote his name was John Newton. And there's a, actually a movie called uh, Amazing Grace. That's a story of his life. It's a great movie that I'd suggest to go and watch it. Um, but John Newton was not a good man. Now, his life started off like, like anybody else's would. Uh, and he actually probably started off better off than anybody else's did. He had a mom and a dad who cared for him. Uh, his mom uh, w- was a strong Christian, and she began to, to teach him and be able to, to, to share with him about who Jesus is. But after his dad had died, and his mom passed away at age seven, when he was age seven. And so uh, he got very angry with God, that God would take his parents, that God would take this. And, and we, we see his life kind of play itself out. And even as I talk about it, let me just read to you what his headstone says. And you can see that beginning and end, the past and the, the future that comes from it. It says, this John Newton, clerk, which means preacher, once an infidel and a libertine, a servant of slavers in Africa, was, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. Almost kind of sounds like Paul. But like I said, at age seven, his, his parents, or his, his mom passed away, and it sent him into this rebellious stage. And he rebelled against the church, he rebelled against God, he rebelled against the school, and eventually ended up in the Navy. And even in the Navy, he had this real problem with rebellion. And not only a real problem with rebellion, like I said, he wasn't a nice man. He had a real problem with his mouth. He had a real problem with his anger. Uh, so much so that he actually got in trouble for using too much profanity. Now, when was the last time you heard a sailor get in trouble for using too much profanity? And uh, so uh, he, he literally was a terrible guy. He got booted from the Navy. In the process of getting booted from the Navy, he went on to work on a slave ship that would travel back and forth from Africa to get slaves. And he was a servant there. And while a servant there, he worked his way up, became the, the, uh, the captain of a slave ship. And his crew hated him. And the people that he was bringing on hated him. He was not nice. He was so hated that 
one time he fell overboard, and in the process of falling overboard, instead of throwing him a rescue ship, they harpooned him in the leg and pulled him back into the boat. That's what his crew thought of him. And when we think about that, we think about him being the guy who got sick on the boat, had some illness come over him, some different things. Obviously, I'm sure having that limp and having a harpoon scar on his leg probably didn't help either, but had to step away from that, met a guy by the name of John Wesley. You may have heard of him before. Became a Christian, became a preacher, and wrote this song. Now do you understand what a wretch is? Now do you understand why he wrote that to say, amazing grace that Jesus would save me from all of this junk, even though I rebelled against him, even though I did all this, I was saved by him. That is why grace is amazing, that God would get a hold of him. And it's amazing to hear what he has to say. One of his last sermons, as his mind was fading, as his health was deteriorating, he said this, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. And that's it. That's it. That's what Paul understood when he met Jesus face to face on the road to Damascus and his whole life changed. When, when John Newton met Jesus Christ through, through John Wesley and, and all the things that went with it and his whole life changed, they got it. Like a light bulb went off in their head. They understood what grace was. They realized how great a Savior that Jesus really is. That not only did Jesus come to change our present and our future and our eternity, but he also came to work with our past and change our past. And change our view of the past. Because, see, I think it gives us a different view when we look at it. Because many times when we look at our past, we say, well, if only. If I had only done blank. Or if I had only not done blank. If I hadn't married him. If I hadn't got addicted to this. If I hadn't, whatever it might be. Our if onlys are a mile long. And we can change those if onlys when we see what Jesus can do. And instead of saying if only, we say because of this, God can. Because of this, God can use it for his glory and his honor. And that's a huge step to take. And it comes down to understanding grace. When I was a kid, my parents used to listen to this comedian. His name was Emo Phillips. And they would put the cassette tape into the, uh, the dash of the car on a road trip when they'd be listening to Emo Phillips. And, you know, if you know a cassette tape, it would go from side one to side two to side one to side two, and people would forget to switch it. So I'd be listening to it, and they'd be up talking and so on and so forth. And I remember this bit that he would do. He'd say, I always wanted a bike. So I'd ask God for a bike. I would pray to God for a bike. But I knew that God didn't work that way. So instead, I stole a bike and then asked for forgiveness. And that is... That is our understanding sometimes of grace. We have this tension in our head that, well, if God's in the business forgiving, forgiving sin, and I'm in the business of sinning, then, well, that sounds like it goes hand in hand, so I'm just going to keep on sinning, and he can keep on forgiving. And we have this misunderstanding of what grace is, and why should we strive for a holy life? Why should I continue to move forward if he's forgiving? If a penalty's been paid, then why do I need to have progress made in our life? Why do I need to move forward? Why can't I just hang out here in my past? So I think what we need to talk about today is what is grace? What is grace and what does it mean to you? What is grace and how does it apply to you? What is grace? See, I used to think of grace as, as something that was apart from God, something that, that he would he would dump out on us like he'd be sitting on a giant heavenly throne and have this pile of grace dust behind him. 
And anytime anybody did something, he would dump and sprinkle that forgiveness grace on whoever was down there that needed it. Kind of like, you know, Tinkerbell kind of thing. And and whenever it was necessary, he would do it. And, And let me just tell you something. I was wrong. You can mark that in the calendar. It's not very often I say that. I was wrong. And in it, the fact that I was wrong was this. That, that grace is not a thing. Grace is, is more than just a thing. It, it, it's not given to us by God apart from himself. You know, I've heard it often said that grace is an undeserved gift. And that is true. But it's more than that. Because not only is grace a gift that is given to us by God, grace is God. He's not only the giver of the gift, he is the gift. And we have to understand that. We have to take that in. We have to hold on to that to understand what grace really is. God graces us with himself. And if that's grace, what does grace do? How does it, how does it work in us? And I'll tell you this much. Grace isn't just something that is, that is added to my, my religiosity. Like, I'm pretty good, and we're going to wrap this grace bow around it to finish me off. Grace isn't the the cherry that's on top of my morality pie. That's not the way it plays itself out. Instead, what grace is, is grace is everything. And grace changes everything. As we said, this changes everything last week. We said, Jesus changes everything. Well, Jesus is grace. Grace changes everything. Grace changes my past. Grace changes my present. Grace changes my future, and it most certainly changes my eternity. And we see it play itself out that grace saves and it sanctifies. At least that's, that's what it's supposed to be. But a lot of times we get caught up and we miss what it is. We think about, well, it's, it's there to, to fix the problems that I have. We forget that it's actually there to help move us into the future and carry us through the future. That in our Christian life, grace is the beginning, the middle, and the end. It is what it is. And that we receive it to be transformed. But sometimes we don't understand it. Sometimes we get confused on what it is. Sometimes we have misconceptions of what it is. So, so I wrote down five common misconceptions that we have. And I'd like to, to take a look at those misconceptions and I'd like to fix those. And not only that, I think we have some enemies that we have when it comes to grace. And anytime you understand an enemy, if you've ever done any sort of military thing or you ever even played paintball, when you understand your enemy, you figure out how to defeat it. And you figure out how to attack it in the right way. And so what we're going to do is we're going to lay out those enemies and figure out how to defeat those as well as we look at grace. So first thing I want to look at is the five common misconceptions about grace. And the first misconception I see is this, is that grace is permission to sin. Grace is permission for us to sin. That is a, that is a misconception. Like I said before, it's like a match made in heaven. God's in the business of forgiving. I'm in the business of sinning. He likes forgiving sins. I like sinning, so let's put those together and we're just going to do it that way. That's the way we live our life. That gives us permission to do that. It presumes that God's job is to forgive our sin, but that's not God's job. And the forgiveness of sin isn't what it is. Grace is not permission to sin, but it's the power to overcome sin. Grace is the power that is there. It forgives sins. It transforms sinners into saints. It it changes us from who we were into who we are. And it uses who we were as the, the building point. Our past brings us to this point, but it doesn't carry us into the future. Grace is what carries us into the future. The second thing is that we have this misconception on is that grace fills the gaps. 
Like I'm some sort of weightlifter and I'm doing bench presses and I got to rep out 12 reps and by 10 I'm just really, really struggling to get it out and, and, and Grace just pulls up those last two to help me get those last two out. It, it's my help. It fills in the gaps. I get, I'm good up to this point and it covers up the rest. It polishes up my, uh, my achievements to make them look better. We have this idea of that's what grace is, that somehow it helps us get to the finish line. But I think if we look at grace in that way, we underestimate what sin really is, how bad sin really is, how detrimental, how cancerous sin really is. Because when we say, well, I'm just trying to get to the finish line and grace is going to help me the rest of the way, we have to understand in sin, we are dead. There is no moving. We're not moving towards the finish line. We're sitting dead. Dead people don't do anything. And so when grace comes in, it gives us life, and it's what moves us. It's what gives us the life. It's what gives us that to to move to that finish line. So we have to understand that it is, once again, the beginning, the middle, and the end of our Christian life. It's not just a part of it. The third misconception is this, is that God is letting up on his standards. God is letting up on our standards. We have this view of God in, in the Old Testament as this tyrant God that would stand over and just punish everybody and say, do the rules or else. And we have this view of God being that way in the, in the Old Testament and then the New Testament. There's about a 400-year gap in there. And during that 400-year gap, that God all of a sudden woke up on the right side of the cloud. In the process of waking up on the right side of the cloud, He was ready to be nice to us finally. And then His grace is going to pour out and He's going to let His standards drop down. But let me tell you something. He didn't let His standards drop down. What He did is He let His Son come down. And His Son came down to fulfill what we couldn't. The standard that was set that his Israelites and everybody else in the Old Testament couldn't meet, Jesus came down and he met those standards for us. He didn't come down to let down his standards. He came to fulfill them. He came to fulfill the law. And we have to hold on to that. Jesus lived a perfect life. That's what we celebrated last week. That's what we'll celebrate again this week. That's what we're going to celebrate every day. He came and he lived a perfect life and he had the power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit that was in him and it's in us as well. So it moves us forward. God is not letting up on his standards, but we have Jesus to help us reach his standards, to to fill that, not the gap, but the thing that we couldn't do, which was be good enough. Grace opposes effort is the fourth one. Grace opposes effort. If it's all about grace, then I apparently apparently don't need to do anything. People will use the the passages found in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, when it says, by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, so nobody can boast. That means you don't get to do anything. And people will hold on to say, well, grace is not about effort at all. Let me just tell you a misconception about that verse in itself, which leads to this misconception about that grace opposes effort. Grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. It's opposed to earning. See, our effort comes after grace has been showed to us because we are responding to grace. We're not earning that grace. God didn't say, all right, you finally have made it. I'm going to give this to you. It's the fact that he's given it to us and we say, God, how can I respond in kind? What can I do? How can I live my life out for you? That's why Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, that's where the work comes in. It's us being worked through him after grace has come in and is changing us. The fifth misconception is this, is that grace is only for godly people. 
Grace is only for godly people. And this is probably one of the hardest ones because inside our head and inside our heart and inside our mind, what we want to do is we want to say, well, I have to earn it. And once I get to that place, I can have it. Well, it goes against what we said in verse, or the, the fourth misconception and especially in this one. It's not just for godly people. As a matter of fact, God's grace makes ungodly people godly. Not the other way around. Not godly people who do good enough to get it. God is in the business of redeeming people. If you look at the Bible, God is not chasing down good people. He's chasing down the lost to redeem them. And we have to hold on to those. We have to understand that if we're thinking differently, we need to change that thinking because it ruins what grace is in our mind and in our hearts. You know what else ruins what grace is? Are these three enemies. And the three enemies are this. Number one is pride. Pride. I'm not sure about you, but I struggle with pride. I have what's called an ego problem. I'm a man. That's problem number one. And then problem number two is is that I like to be right. And I like to be right, and I like to do what I want to do, and I like to do it, and I like to get the pats on the back. I like to receive the glory for it. I'm just going to be honest with you. So it's, it's difficult to let pride set aside because something about grace that we have to understand is that grace is not earned. You cannot earn a free gift. I cannot take credit for a free gift. And when that stands in the way between me and God, that's a problem because he wants to put it out there. Grace is, is something that, that is given. There, there's a common misconception in religion. There's common misconception among people on the outside of religion that say, well, God in religion is just a crutch for the weak. I want to correct them because you cannot crutch the dead. We are dead. You cannot crutch them up. There is no extra. We are dead and we have to be made alive. And that new life comes from a new heart, not from a crutch. And that's what grace gives us is a new heart. So we have to throw that pride aside. We have to say, I'm being changed from the inside out. And a lot of times we resist grace because we want the glory. We have to let that go, that pride. The second thing we have to understand that's an enemy is entitlement. Entitlement's a word that gets used often in our culture now. And I'll give you the steps to entitlement in case you're not aware of them already. The first thing is you receive a gift with gratefulness. You receive a gift with gratefulness. We receive grace with gratefulness. But the problem is, is we receive things with gratefulness, then it becomes routine, and that's the second step. We get used to the gift as it becomes routine. And we expect the gift to the point where the third step is we demand the gift. And once you're demanding a gift, it's no longer a gift. Once you're demanding grace, you're taking away its power. You're dissolving what it actually is because you say, I deserve this. So we have to get rid of the entitlement. We have to get rid of the pride. And the third one is this, is self-pity. Self-pity. If pride says, I don't need grace, and entitlement claims, I deserve grace, and the last one is, is that I'm not good enough for grace. We have this mindset in our head that I know God can forgive me, but I can't forgive me. The only problem with that thinking is this, that you, when you say that, while my sound humble, actually you're sounding more like the fact that you have the ability to, to have a higher moral standard than God. If God can forgive it, but you can't, you just put yourself on a higher standard than him. Or even the second part is, you might doubt the sufficiency of Christ's death on the cross. And that's a bad place to be. We have to get rid of that self-pity, because if God is a great God and Jesus is a great Savior, that gets in the way of us thinking that our sin somehow is greater. 
And we have to break down which one it is. Are we trusting that grace is sufficient for him and for me? Is his grace sufficient? You know, when you look at the myths and what we hold on to, and when you look at the lies and what we hold on to, and you look at the enemies and what we have to fight, it's good knowledge. But how does it play out? How does it play out in our lives? How does it play out on the battlefield? How does it play out when it comes to, am I good enough? We have that, don't we? We have that battle in our head. Am I good enough? There's no way Christ could possibly because I am not, or whatever it might be. Well, Jesus actually talks about it in, in Matthew chapter 21. He has a parable that, that, that he's talking to the religious leaders, and he says, you know, in this I want you guys to know that as good as you think you are, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going to go into the kingdom of heaven before you. If you have your Bibles, flip over to Matthew chapter 21, and we're just going to read four quick verses, five quick verses here. Matthew 21, verses 28 through 32. And it says this. It says, what do you think? Jesus asked these religious leaders. A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. Verse 29. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards, he changed his mind, and he went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, well, obviously the first. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. You think that might have been a little bit of a shock to them? I mean, here's the religious elite. Here's the ones who are rich in theology, rich in, in scripture, rich in probably finances, rich in all the things that are necessary, at least in their mind, to get into heaven. Then below them you have the sinners. Then below them you have the tax collectors. And below them you have the prostitutes. So you took the two lowest people on the totem pole and said, hey, guess what's going to happen? You guys who are way up here, these guys are going in first. And it kind of blew their mind. And it says, why? Right here in verse 32, it says, for John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe him. How is it possible? How is it possible that a holy God can have a kingdom full of unholy people? Because that's what Jesus is saying right here. We're going to let the least, the most unholy, into the kingdom first before you who are the best, or at least assume you're the best. How does that happen? How does that play itself out? Either God is going to overlook sin or God's going to transform sinners. See, if God overlooks sin and have a kingdom full of, of tax collectors and prostitutes, well, overlooking that sin means all of a sudden you're going to have sexual sin in heaven. It means you're going to have injustice in heaven. It means you're going to have the strong oppressing the weak in heaven. And that doesn't sound like heaven to me. That sounds like where we're already at. So God's not going to overlook it. And the God of the gospel has to remain holy, so he doesn't just dismiss sin, he has to deal with it. Well, how did he deal with it? He dealt with it through his son, Jesus Christ. He dealt with it through the, the death, the burial, and the resurrection that we celebrated once again last week and celebrate again this week. The death, burial, and the resurrection changed everything. And it changed these people's lives. It changes the tax collector's lives. It changes the prostitute. It changes the worst of the worst. It changes the best of the best. It changes them for his glory and his honor because he is in the business of transforming. He is in the business of bringing people 
to where he wants them to be. He meets people where they are, but he refuses to leave them there. See, that's the problem with our past. Our past has this tendency to hold us together. Our past has this tendency to hold us right where we're at. Our past has a tendency to be baggage. You'll see over here, I'm going to reach for it over your Risa. And, and I have some bags that are over here. And each one of these bags are kind of represented by something different. But all of us have baggage, and we all have it in our past. And the first bag I have here is the biggest one because it's what I've done in my past. It's all the things that I have done that I know are wrong. That even though I can look at the life of Paul, and even though I can look at the life of John Newton, I can say, well, Paul's in the Bible, so that's a given. He's got to be good. And, and John Newton, well, he's just one in a million. And so God can forgive them, but, but what, about, what about me? I got all these things that I'm holding on to and all these things that, that I just can't let go of because, you know, if I were ever to run for president, that they would dig these things out of my closet and there's no way in the world that, that I could be forgiven here and there's no way in the world that God would ever forgive me for these things. You know, these are my, my BC, my before Christ. So, so I'm just going to hang on to these. And I have these in my past that I'm holding on to and then comes along the backpack. And the backpack, the backpack is the things that others have said to me. You know, these are the things that I've done, and these are the things that I'm guilty for, but these are the things that others have said to me. And, and in the process of having these things that others have said to me, I, I've got them on my shoulder, and, and I'm carrying them around. And the beautiful thing is, is that they have these little hooks on the outside, so when my backpack gets full, I can still hook more things on the outside and be able to carry that, and be able to take those things with me. Because I've got those, and people are constantly saying things. Things like, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. There's no way you can do that. There's no way that that's even possible. How could you be so stupid? I'm so disappointed in you. You fill in the blanks. You fill in the backpack. But we carry those things with us, do we not? And in the process of carrying those things with us, this backpack begins to get full. And like I said, once it gets to the point of full, we start hooking it on the outside. But not only do they say things to us, there's things in our past that people have done to us. And we have this, this one here, and this is full of the things that people have done. Not just said, but physically done. Whether it be abuse or neglect or whatever it might be, we have this, and we hold on to it as well. And we're, we're beginning to fill ourselves up. And I'm not sure if you've ever been to the airport and seen somebody who had a ton of baggage, and they were just struggling to get through the airport. Well, in our lives, when we have a ton of baggage, we struggle to get through life. We have all this stuff that we're carrying around. And like I said, here's our past sins. Here's the things that we've done. Here's all the things that keep filling up that, that we've got that, that are things that people have said. And here's what people have done to us. And I'm going to hold on to it. And you know what the worst thing about this thing that, that we have that we're holding on to this is that we can't forgive them. And that creates even a heavier bag than it, it was to begin with. Because we carry around that unforgiveness. We carry around that bitterness. And it affects everything that we do and everything that we say and everything that we, how we act. So these are just the three. But then, then we move over here to our next, our next little bag here. And these are the things, not that we've done, but the things that we haven't done. Well, if only I had done this, my life would be different. If only I listened to this person, I would be different. And we live in pity and self-pity. And we wallow around in the same, well, if I only had done this, and I'm going to put this one on just similar like that. So I, I got these bags and, and they're starting to get more and more full because I'm filling up with new things and new memories that I'm holding on to. Well, guess what comes along? Well, now, now we have this one other thing that maybe we use to try and carry the rest of the bags. 
It's addictions. It's an alcohol addiction. It's a drug addiction. It's a pornography addiction. It's a pride addiction. It's a I need a pat on the back addiction. We're hoping the things that, that, that we're carrying here will actually take away all of the other things we're carrying already. Because why do people drink and why do people get high? Well, to escape all the baggage, right? Why do I look for, for the approval of man to escape all the baggage, right? But the problem is this is temporary, and then it begins to fill up. And we say, well, I kind of blew it with whatever I was doing, and I know it's not really going to work, but I did it anyway, and now I'm carrying another bag. Well, guess what? We're not done yet because we have one more bag that I know we're carrying around, and it kind of fits in with even maybe the addictions, but it's our secret sin. That one sin that we know that we know God can't forgive. We know nobody else can know about it. I mean, I go to church, and people knew about that sin. Yikes. People are perfect at church, right? But we forget they're carrying baggage, too, because that's the problem when we go to the airport, isn't it? Wouldn't you like to help somebody, but you're carrying your own baggage? In life, that's it. We're carrying all this baggage. We're like, God, can you just take it from me? Can anybody take this from me? We'll try and push it off on somebody else, and sometimes we'll push our baggage off on somebody else by saying things that are mean and saying things that are hurtful, and they got new baggage all of a sudden. And it fits in that same baggage of the, the things that people have said to us. We're just carrying all these bags around. They're getting fuller and heavier, and we say, God, I thought you said you wanted me to live a life that was lived to the abundantly. I mean, John 10.10 10 says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but, but Jesus came to give us life to the full. Does this look like life to the fullest? Does this look like fun? When you see this person at the airport, you're like, man, I wish I were them. Never. We want to be free from this. But the amazing thing is, is that in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Jesus, I came to die for that. Why are you carrying it? Why are you holding on to it? Why won't you let me have it? Do you really think that my grace isn't sufficient for you? Do you not understand grace and what it is, and that it is the beginning and the middle and the end of your Christian life? Give it to me. I want you to live a life of freedom. I want you to be free from the chains. I want you to experience amazing grace. I want you to have that, and I want you to hold it, and I want you to understand it. And not just understand it, but to apply it. I want you to get it. Not just to have it, but get it. Just get it. That I came to die for you. I came to die for your sins. Stop carrying them around. I came to die for your past sins. I came to die for your present sins. I came to die for your future sins. That way you could spend eternity with me. That's what he said. So why is it that we forget? Why is it that we hold on to it? Why is it somehow, some way, we can look at the life of Paul and say, that's great for that Bible guy, but not for me. His grace is sufficient for us. I would pray today that you understand that. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ 
who died on the cross, who was buried, and who raised again, so that your grace might be poured out on me and that I could experience it in the fullest, that he would take my sins away from me, that I could have a relationship with you, and that I could be here not just to exist, but to truly live. And in that grace, respond in a way that opened eyes to other people who are outside of this room that are struggling with all of this baggage, who are on their computer looking at things, hoping to fulfill a need, who are sitting in a bar hoping to fulfill a need, who are getting high hoping to fulfill a need, who are working overtime hoping to fulfill a need, only a need that can be met by you. God, you're so good to us. You're so full of grace. That grace is so amazing that it would save a wretch like me. God, we come here to give you thanks and to celebrate that resurrection, the fact that you have changed our past. Not from an if only, but to because of God can. God, I pray you use us today. That you speak to us today. That maybe there's somebody in here that's carrying some serious baggage. And God, they would leave it here at the altar with you. But God, maybe there's somebody in here that's really struggling with an addiction, that's really struggling with something that somebody said to them, really struggling with something that somebody did to them, maybe struggling with something they did themselves. But God, they would leave it. Shake it and break it. Break that chain. That slavery is no longer. That we are your sons and daughters. God, you're awesome. And you provided that for us. Help us not to neglect that. Help us not to miss that. I pray in your name this morning. Amen going to let you know I'm going to be down here in the front and I would love to pray with you. But I'll be honest, I'm not sure if you need me to pray with you. because I don't need to be your mediator. I think what you need to do is get on your knees before God, between you and Him.